everybody's down in their seats, and uh, we might as well get started, if that's all right with Pastor Ryan. Okay. All right. Well, you see, miracles do happen. I have a haircut. It's uh, Claudia. Your other half is up here. <laughs> I saw you looking over in the normal place. <laughs> He's being, he's being Paul Baker today. Well, welcome everybody. And <laughs> and uh, Nancy has passed on to me a little note here. On the back at the table at the back there, there's uh, a sign-up paper back there. They're going to rework the... Uh, 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 prayer chain, couldn't get it out, and they're wondering if people would like to join uh, in helping uh, promote the prayer chain. In other words, uh, if you don't know how that works, uh, there's a number of people, and I call Elaine and tell her what the problem is, and then she calls a couple other people, and then a couple other people call another couple other people, and the whole word gets around. So if you'd like to be involved in that, uh, there's a sign-up sheet back behind, and uh, Nancy would like to have uh, as many people involved as possible so that we can keep the prayer chain going. So uh, if you have any questions, of course, you can talk to Nancy. Uh, Christine's not here. They're on vacation. So uh, I guess she will be away for they left yesterday. They'll probably be back in three weeks because they're usually down there for two weeks. The whole family gets together. Where do they go? Stone Harbor. Yeah. So we'll keep them in our prayers that they have a good time. They we're looking forward to getting together with family, and, and that's always a good time for them. So we'll keep them in our prayers. Um, I don't think I have anything else to pass on to the folks that, uh, that I had here. So with that in mind, we have... A hymn to sing to open our service. It's number 43, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's stand and sing number 43. Our regular hug and, and uh, shake hands. I hope. I hope. Sharing joys and concerns. Uh, Nancy, or uh, Christine is not here. Nancy, do you have any updates that you need to share with us? Okay, I'll pass this on to you. I just, we've been praying for baby Colson, and I was here a little bit earlier. This week he has started vomiting and has some blood in his stools, and they thought maybe his heart uh, wasn't perfusing like it should be because they were decreasing the IV medication that they were giving him for heart failure. It went from like 0.3 down to 0.1. They're trying to get him off that because they thought his heart has a 70% chance now recovery but when this happened they thought well now maybe his heart's not it's not perfusing like it should be but they did studies and they learned it was the dairy products mom was drinking that was causing the baby to not tolerate the protein in and that breast milk so uh, fortunately she said she had frozen breast milk before she introduced the dairy and because it happened before when he was five weeks old his heart is back to normal size. That left lower chamber was huge. Uh, she shows on the 
picture, it was really big. Now it's back to being a small, normal left ventricle. So praise God uh, for how well he has been doing. And they're still moving forward to believing he'll be recovering from that. No one, you're right, only one doctor ever saw that happen. All doctors that are there, none of them have seen it except for one older doctor has ever seen anything like that. Uh, recovery, so. That's amazing. And we have a nephew, Mike Gerberich, who's going for back surgery on Tuesday. It's called a laminectomy. They're going to, like, widen the space. So he has been having pain on and off for five years, but to give more room for his the spinal cord. So prayer for him. I talked to Loretta Blatt yesterday, and I told her we, we missed Earl and Loretta. He had a second time where they removed fluid from around his lungs. So right now he's breathing okay, but his appetite is still decreased. So the doctor gave medicine to increase his appetite and to help him sleep. She said they have decisions they have to make, so they, they asked for prayer for wisdom. I mean, they could... He's at home. Mm -hmm. They're just afraid to come because of his breathing, because of the issues he has had. They don't want to get the, right. the virus. But they appreciate everybody's prayer and they miss everybody. Yeah. That, that, let everybody know and they thank you for prayers. And we talked to Jim, having one for torn rotator cuff. It's been a month now. He said he can't like lift. His lower <laughs> arm's okay, but the upper arm is not. They did an EM. No, they did a. MRI on Friday. So he's waiting this week for results. He said he'll be seeing the fifth doctor for that, but he doesn't have pain anymore. He had pain initially. The pain has gone away. And Jim Myers, I'm told, is doing well. Good. Recovering from that COVID-19. And we added a Barb Adams, who's a friend of our daughter, Steph's grandmother. And she's having an echo done on tomorrow. Her has, she has an elevated heart rate and uh, probably with her blood pressure. So we had put her on the prayer chain. So I think that's everybody. How about your husband? Oh, and Joel had, yeah, seen an EMG done on Thursday. Thinking of you, Doc and Amy. But he uh, didn't get the results back. They told him to have it by Friday, but he hasn't. But Yesterday, last night and the night before, really intense pain around between 11 o'clock and 12.30 in the morning where he just, ice doesn't work. He just has severe pain. Um, so praying for, you know, recovery of that and answers. Yeah. We, are, we are a magnificently made person and... God put us all together just so perfectly, but if we get it out of whack, it really has consequences. But we are resilient, so uh, we're going to pray for all types of recovery. Anyone else like to share? Anybody have anything else they want to share? Okay. Pastor Ryan, do you have anything that you... Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I had promised myself I would write down all this information and you see how quickly I forgot so we're going to have to to uh, wing it and uh, we're going to go to prayer right now oh before we do that I, I do have something a little bit more personal uh, my brother helps me at work 
And uh, if he lives until January, he'll be 80. No, it's not old at all. No. Now, Walter, now that's old. Oh. <laughs> but anyhow, he likes to do things around his house. And, his, and uh, sometime, some months ago, he wanted to get up on the roof and do some painting and repair. And his wife kept saying, you're going to fall off of the ladder. You're going to fall off the roof. And he kept saying to me, we'd sort of chuckle about it and say, uh, he'd say, I'm not going to fall off the well. Tuesday, he fell off the ladder. Broke his arm in two places, broke his elbow, broke his jaw. Um, it's good, and he landed on concrete. So it's good he didn't land on the back of his head, or he probably wouldn't be here. But he's still in the med center. Uh, they did surgery on his elbow, and the doctor said it was very unusual break in a very unusual place, but everything went back together really well. And now they were going to work on his jaw, but, uh, yeah, so I guess his wife was correct. <laughs> he will fall off the ladder. So I guess we got to take that serious, you know. So I guess, guys, I guess we got to listen to our wives. Huh? Does that surprise the women? <laughs> no, of course it doesn't surprise us. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Always get the last word. Yes, dear. Yeah. Okay. They haven't given us a a, uh, a listing unless there's something in the in the bulletin. But uh, uh, was speaking for that, we missed a two cent a meal uh, offering. Of course, with all that's going on, there's one coming up in August. I think the very first part of August. So keep that in mind. We'll we'll do that at in August. So, okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as I said to the congregation, I failed to write down names and situations, but I don't have to write them down for you. That is so marvelous, Lord, that you know everything even before we open our mouths. Thank you, Lord, for the great ability that you have far more than what we have. You are wonderful, Lord. You know all the situations. You know all the individuals because you are the great physician. But we do pray for little baby Colton that his heart will continue to progress. And Nancy showed me a picture of the little guy on her phone. Such a big smile, but such a terrible scar on the little guy's chest. But Lord, we know that you have him in your hands, and we pray that he will continue to progress. Thank you, Lord, for your love for little children. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one that we can rely on to do the impossible. Thank you. And we pray for Joel. We pray for healing in his arm that uh, things will work out for him, that the results from his tests will come back and, and uh, they will know a, a course of action. Uh, like we said, Lord, we have such intricate, perfect bodies that you have put together for us. We are knit together so specifically and so uniquely. 
we rely on you to keep us that way. Through prayer, we ask for your intervention. Lord, thank you for all the situations that you have helped us in. Thank you, Lord, for prayers for, for Earl with his situation, with his breathing. We miss Earl. We miss Loretta. Bring them back to us, Lord. Help Earl to recover from his situation. Thank you, Lord, for all those individuals who are continually praying for those that need that prayer. And Lord, we also pray for Christians throughout the world who are being subjected to oppression. Lord, we specifically think of Nigerian Christians. Our brothers and sisters in that country face great challenges. And we know that you love them. We ask that you intervene. Stand with them, Lord. Give them strength. Give them strong, strong faith. And Lord, also we pray for our country. We certainly need this country to pull back to you. Lord, please make it happen. Bring our morality back to what you have so designed and laid out in scripture. Lord, it's the only way that this country will recover for itself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for our prayer warriors in this congregation. We ask this blessing upon all those. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. It's our time for our offering. And of course, we are not going to pass the plate yet. You probably saw the plates. That I understand the history of that hymn is that the authors, the author watched his wife and children, I believe, their ship burn. Is that right? When they were crossing the Atlantic? Is that correct? Is that the history? It sank. Okay. And that's writing that hymn. When he penned the hymn. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Really significant. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Well, good morning. Good morning. I um, have had some anxiety over about what I am about to say today. I don't know if anxiety is the right word or if it's more of just a burning inside of me that I need to get out what needs to be said today. And so I hope that you'll be um, kind and patient with the sermon that I've prepared. I believe that it's necessary for our times and, um, and I do believe that it is challenging as well. So uh, before we begin, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for uh, sustaining us through the night and uh, for the air in our lungs, the beating of our hearts. And we're here today to be um, challenged and confronted by your word uh, because we believe that your word is the only sure foundation, Lord, and we trust in it. So we ask that you would meet us here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you saw from the bulletin, we're going to be reading from Colossians. Um, and I have some background history about the ancient city of Colossae. Um, it's located, uh, or was located, which um, 
or excuse me, it is located in modern-day Turkey. And um, archaeological evidence suggests that the city was founded approximately 4,000 years ago. Uh, it enjoyed financial success for many years due to a textile industry, uh, specifically the making of dyed red wool. And the area surrounding the city of Colossae was known for its, mo or excuse me, its moderate climate, fertile soil, rolling hills, and green pastures. And so you might think it pre pretty similar to the way this area looks. By the time that Paul wrote to the churches in Colossae, it was ethnically diverse, made up of Jews, Romans, Greeks, Rygians, and many other nationalities. Now, Colossae is less than 10 miles from the city of Ephesus. The Ephesians had a famous temple dedicated to the god Artemis, which was most certainly known to the Colossians and probably had an influence over the city of Colossae. Those who worshipped the idol of Artemis believed her to be the protector of the area and no doubt their foundation to continued success. And there were many ideas and philosophies and religious practices that enjoyed success in the city due to its ethnic and cultural diversity. Paul says in verses 1, excuse me, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that Jesus is supreme in every way and that he is the only true foundation because he is the one who made all things. And thus he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul says that at one time the Colossians were hostile in mind, he says, doing evil deeds, but had since been reconciled to God through the body of Jesus Christ by his death. And so that idea that they were once hostile in mind is important. In chapter 2, Paul speaks about several things that the churches in Colossae were engaged in that he found troublesome. They were judging others for not keeping certain dietary restrictions. There were some who were making themselves out to be above the rest of the congregation because of person, personal worship experiences that were purported to be visions of angels. And there were others who were claiming religious superiority by punishing their bodies through self-abasement. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so the problem in the Colossian church was that they were mixing pagan ideas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Colossian church was mixing the ideas of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The result is that what had been formed was not based on the true foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And for many of us today, the specific problems with the Colossian church are not things that we deal with today. Not many of us deal with these specific problems that the Colossian church has had to deal with. We're not mired in conversations about dietary restrictions. But the point that Paul makes is still relevant to us today. We must be on guard for the mixing of the ideas of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For invariably what happens 
is that the base is not in Christ. The foundation is not in Christ alone. It's important to note that in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul uses an imperative verb to begin this verse. See to it. Pay attention. Take heed. Watch out for that. Now, the imperative mood ex expresses a direct command or request. In this case, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is commanding us to do something. We are to pay attention so that we are not taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies that are operating in the world. Why are we commanded to watch out for these hollow and deceptive philosophies? Well, two reasons. First, Paul says that in chapter 2, verse 4, that the ideas of this world are plausible. In other words, they can be subtle and persuasive. And secondly, they depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And what he means there by elemental spiritual forces is through the, um, what he means by that is a, a use of magic, manipulating the forces of the world, earth, water, wind, fire, manipulating them. It's, it's, he's talking about magic. Now notice that Paul situates two foundations to knowledge beside one another. One being human wisdom and the other being Christ. Now Paul says in Colossians 1 that he was in prayer for the Colossians asking that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they might be increasing in the knowledge of God's will. That their hearts might be encouraged to reach the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now it was once the case in the past that some of the brightest minds the world has ever seen Think of Augustine, St. Augustine, Jerome, Thomas Aquinas, Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and many others viewed the Christian religion, particularly divine revelation, as a foundational means to knowledge. In other words, they believed firmly that Christ was a sure foundation to knowledge, that the Word of God had meaning precisely because the Lord Himself his purpose to reveal himself to mankind through it. And that we can only truly understand the creation and all that is in it through revelation by his word. Now, in the mid-19th century, religion, particularly divine revelation, as a means to knowledge, was abandoned. During this period of time, it was thought that the only means to knowledge was through the hard sciences. In other words, the only sure foundation to knowledge was human wisdom through experimentation, evidence, and proof. And this idea is still with us today and is precisely what Paul commands us to watch out for. That is, hollow and deceptive philosophies that are based upon human wisdom rather than on the Word of God. Now, this does not mean that persons who devote their life to science are rebelling against God. I'm not saying that at all. On the contrary, it was once the case that scientists endeavored to study the creation because they believed that by doing so, they were bringing glory to God. And no doubt they were and still are. But notice that Paul describes human wisdom as hollow. In other words, human wisdom and knowledge apart from Christ is baseless. It's having no foundation. 
It would be like building a house on sand. When the waters rise, the house falls. Now, the book of Judges may not be your favorite book in the Bible. Worship of idols, murders, rapes, civil wars among the Hebrews, human sacrifices, and culminating with the dismembering of a poor young woman's body probably does not put this book on the top of your reading list. The message of the book of Judges is clear by the way that the book has been framed. In the second chapter, we read this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The book closes by saying, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges is a theological reflection of what happens to a people when they abandon the word of the Lord. That is, what are the consequences to forgetting the word of the Lord, to our sure foundation to knowledge? Another way of putting this is in terms of the sowing and reaping principle. If you do this, then you can expect that. Sowing and reaping is something that I believe we are witnessing today. We are witnessing some of the fruits of our labors as a nation. As we have seemingly walked away from the word of God, we have lost our sure foundation to knowledge. As a result, we're left with the hollow wisdom and knowledge of mankind. And consequently, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are left swaying in the wind, being carried to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Being carried to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine seems to align well with these contemporary times. A July 1st, 2020 headline in the New York Times reads as follows. A Massachusetts city decides to recognize polyamorous relationships. The city of Somerville, Massachusetts, has broadened the definition of domestic partnerships to include relationships between three or more adults. In effect, expanding access to health care. One of the city councilors who drafted the ordinance is quoted as saying, I don't think that it's the place of the government to tell people what is or is not a family. Defining families is something that historically we've gotten quite wrong as a society. And we ought, not, we ought not to continue to try and undertake to do so. <clears throat> Excuse me. Notice what this man is implying. <coughs> Excuse me, when he says defining families is something that historically we've gotten quite wrong as a society. <coughs> the implication is that the meaning of the word marriage is fluid. That is, the meaning of the word marriage is subject to the whims of persons and societies. Now, to a certain extent, this is true. We use words differently across time. At one point in time, the word nice was used to describe someone who was foolish or stupid. But when we use the word nice today, we're most likely, most likely referring affectionately to a person's disposition. John is a nice man. I'm thinking of you. The real question is who determines what a word means. 
Speaking in Matthew 24, Jesus compares the fleeting nature of this world to the enduring quality of His Word. He says in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Notice the possessive personal pronoun, My words. Isaiah says in chapter 40, The Word of our God endures forever. And Peter repeats this in 1 Peter 1.25 when he says, The word of the Lord endures forever. The sure foundation that is the word of God is eternal, unchanging, and its meaning has been determined by Him. Now, there was a growing movement in the early part of the 20th century which suggested that the meaning of words is independent of an author. Rather, meaning is something that is assigned by a reader or hearer. The technical term for this idea is semantic autonomy. Essentially, this is the idea that the meaning of words are independent of the intelligence that brought them into being. In other words, if someone says something to me, what that person means by the words that they have chosen is for all intents and purposes irrelevant. Rather, the meaning of the words that that person has spoken to me are determined by me. I get to decide what they mean. For instance, if someone says, the house is on fire, it makes no difference what that person means by that statement. Rather, it is up to me to assign meaning to those words. And so according to this idea, when an author writes a book, there's no inherent meaning to the words. Rather, the one who reads the author's work assigns meaning or brings the meaning to the words when he reads it. Consequently, what a particular text means to you may not mean the same thing to me, and what a particular text means to me may not mean the same thing to some third person. And so whose understanding of that author's text is correct? If three people read the same text and believe the same text to mean three different things, am I justified in saying that your understanding is incorrect while mine is correct? If the meaning of a text is something that I as a reader can determine, then cannot you also determine your own meaning? And this idea was sharply criticized in the 1960s in a book titled Validity in Interpretation by E.D. Hirsch, Jr. Professor Hirsch is a literary scholar and his method of attack was ingenious. Essentially, he simply attacked the writings of the proponents of this idea by saying that he understood those authors to be saying such and such. To which those same authors responded by saying, that's not what I meant. <laughs> the point made by Professor Hirsch was clear. Meaning is not something that a reader or hearer gets to decide. Rather, meaning is determined by the author or speaker of those words. Now, the job of an interpreter, and we are all interpreters when we engage in conversation with one another, is to understand what the other person means by the words that they have spoken. And put another way, it is the speaker or author who has assigned meaning to his words. And this seems to make good sense when you think about it. I mean, imagine the chaos that would come about if I said, the house is on fire. And then you proceeded to think, to me, this means that dinner has been prepared and placed on the table, therefore I should go inside and sit down. 
Recall that Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of the Lord endures forever. It is the Lord who has determined their meaning of His revealed word, not a church, a pastor, nor a society. And we're seeing the fruits of this idea in our society. That is the idea that I alone get to decide what something means. And we're feeling the acuteness of its effects. Some persons have described this current social climate as cancel culture. In other words, anything that is deemed to be offensive to someone in our culture is sharply criticized and boycotted. All across our nation, persons are demanding that certain statues be toppled over and removed. In other words, when certain persons look at those statues, they assign a certain meaning to them. And that meaning that they have assigned to those statues is offensive to them. And thus they are justified in calling for their removal. Why am I justified in calling for their removal? Because I can determine their meaning. It doesn't matter what the intent of the artist may have been or those persons who first commissioned the statue. Rather, the only thing that matters is the meaning that I assign to those statues. Police officers and the rule of law are vilified for representing a symbol of oppression. And implicit in this line of reasoning is the idea that I get to determine what something means. It doesn't matter what the police actually stand for. All that matters is the meaning that I assign to them. Now maybe you're thinking, boy, I, I don't know about this, Ryan. I mean, is that really what's going on? It may not be the sole reason for the civil unrest that we're experiencing, but it's certainly playing a part. Kayla shared an article with me a few days ago. It was titled, Realtor Groups Drop Master Bedroom Bathroom Terms from Listings. The Houston Association of Realtors has said that they are dropping the word master from listings for the following reason, quote, we changed the terms master bedroom and master bath to primary bedroom and primary bath in our internal MLS entry platform after a diverse group of members expressed concern that some consumers might perceive the terms to be sexist or racist, end quote. Notice that it's not the author of the listing who determines the meaning of master, but rather the reader. It matters not what the author intended to mean by using that word. Rather, the only thing that matters is the meaning that I supply to those words that that author has chosen to use. And if I perceive a word to be sexist, racist, or offensive, then I'm justified in calling for its removal. I hope that you can understand why we are engaged in such a conflict over the meaning of marriage. It matters not what the authors of Scripture intended to mean by using the word marriage. Rather, the only thing that matters is the meaning that I supply to that word. You say that God has defined marriage as a covenantal union between one man and one woman. Well, I say that I can define marriage, and who are you to tell me that I cannot? Statues, symbols, and words, perhaps even ideas are being canceled from our culture simply because someone says, I have determined that this is offensive to me. If you have ever wondered why our culture is mired in political correctness, 
why when we are out in public that we whisper when we talk about certain things, then look no further. We're afraid of someone hearing what we have said and assigning the wrong meaning to those words. It's the fruit of this idea called semantic autonomy. The idea that the meaning of words is independent of an author. Rather, meaning is assigned by the reader or the hearer of those words. Notice what the Lord says in Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but rather it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The Lord makes it abundantly clear that He is the one who has assigned meaning to His Word. And His Word will accomplish what He desires. And His Word will achieve the purpose for which He has determined. The Lord has spoken to us, revealing Himself through His Word and through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has determined the meaning of His Word. And He has told us that His Word is eternal, that it endures It endures forever. It shall not pass away. And so I want you to be aware of the subtle deception of the kingdom of darkness that is determined to lead us astray. It's suggesting that I can determine what a word means independent of an author or a speaker. That I can determine what God's word means independent of its author, God himself. And Peter warns the church about this in 2 Peter 3 when he says that there are some who are ignorant and unstable. Unstable, meaning that they do not have a sure foundation. Consequently, he says, they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. And certainly we're witnessing the twisting of Scripture in this generation. And I wonder if we are not too far from the time when someone will say that the word sin is offensive to me. That any talk of judgment is offensive to me. That the name Jesus is offensive to me. And thus promptly call for the removal of such words. How will we respond? Will we cancel those words? Will we say you get to determine the meaning of those words? Or will we, will we remain firm in the knowledge of God's revelation to us? The knowledge that dwells within us that we're directly aware of, the knowledge of His Word that is a sure foundation, our foundation for now and forevermore. And so again, I want you to be aware of this hollow and deceptive philosophy that's taking captive many in our culture. I want you to be aware of it so that it does not become mixed with the Word of God in your hearts and break apart your sure foundation to knowledge. Just like the imperfections in wet concrete can weaken the integrity of the structure, so too can the wrong ideas weaken the foundation of our faith and knowledge in Christ. Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that they might increase in the knowledge of God's will. And Paul believed that divine revelation, particularly Jesus Christ, was the only sure foundation to knowledge. Mankind's wisdom and knowledge apart from divine revelation is hollow. The period of the judges is meant to warn us of the dangers 
of walking away from the only sure foundation to knowledge. That is God's word. For invariably, what happens is that every person does what is right in their own eyes. And lastly, contrary to what the world wants to say, meaning is not something that I can assign to the words of an author or a speaker. Rather, meaning is assigned by the author. The Lord has spoken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let's pray. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Lord Jesus, we give you all the glory this morning, for you have revealed to us the plan and purpose of your word. You have come to save us from our sins so that we might experience a new and eternal life in your coming kingdom. I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would guard our hearts and our minds from the deception of the kingdom of darkness and cause us to grow in our knowledge of your eternal and unchanging word, the word that was before all things and in whom all things hold together. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.